Hey guys, let me pull back the curtain here a little. My plan was to end the season here. John Skelton recently called us, and I thought our conversation was the end. But then, things kept happening. More parts to this story surfaced, and so much of it is crucial. You will hear from John Skelton, I promise. But before we get to our phone call, there's more you need to know. Before Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew Skelton, it was John and Tanya. Before they were a family, they were a couple. Before their marriage fell apart, they were happy. John moved to Morency because he had family there. He stayed in Morency because he fell in love with Tanya. He shattered the lives of many people because he couldn't get his way. At least that's the way it seems. There are a lot of people left in the wake of his actions. There's the obvious, Tanya, who lost her three sons, lost her world, and has been forced to defend herself as if she's done something wrong. There's Tanya's family, who lost the boys, but they also lost the Tanya they once knew. There are the boys' friends, all the kids who knew them, grew up with them, and had no idea why one day they were just gone. There's also John's family, aunts, uncles, and cousins who live in Morency. They were part of the boys' lives pretty regularly. And there's John's parents and sister down in Jacksonville, who didn't see the kids as much as the family in Michigan, but still seem to love them as much as anyone. One man has the answers. One man holds the keys. Investigators want more information from him. So does Tanya. Everyone does. But what if this one man has already told us all that he knows? What if we are asking for more when there's nothing more to give? Back in July of 2017, WDIV reporter Sandra Ali, whom you're all familiar with by now, she sent a letter to John Skelton. Dear John, I'm not sure if you remember me. I hope you do. You and I spent many hours talking on the phone back in February of 2011. You shared a lot with me back then. We knew he'd received it, but a fair amount of time would pass without a response. Eventually, John sent one back. Here's a coworker reading John's words. Dear Sandra, I'm doing okay. My vision is rapidly going. As far as how I'm being treated, I was put in segregation for four years. I never did anything wrong, and it was never explained to me why they felt I needed to be in segregation when every other prison I was in, I was in general population. Just recently, September 30th, 2017, they let me out of segregation. After asking for transcripts and newspaper articles regarding his case, he reveals a theory he has. His words again. Michigan State Police says I'm still under investigation for some charge they want to pin on me above and beyond my current sentence. I believe they don't ever want me to get out. He went on to say, I'm sure you don't want to be a real friend to me, but I wish we could. I don't get much mail now. That's why it took me so long to write you. As for people wanting to hear about my need to keep my boys safe, I think Tanya has the victim card and society is against me, not her. I'm the one in prison, not her. She got off the sex offender registry. Tanya has absolutely no concept of nuclear family. She destroyed ours by her selfishness. That's the biggest sore spot for me. We can talk more about that later if you want. Later in the letter, John would say he doesn't want his words to get taken out of context and twisted around. He feels that's exactly what happened during his sentencing. He also attached a recipe. It was a recipe for chicken thighs and potatoes, which was odd. 
but I would later find out John fancies himself as quite the chef. He would sign his letter, quote-unquote, without wax. I had to Google this right away. Without wax translates to sincera, which over time has changed into sincere or sincerely. It actually has an interesting origin story. Sculptors back a long time ago would fill in any mistakes with wax. But a perfect sculpture, one without nicks or imperfections, would then be without wax. Interesting that John seemed to imply this letter was him, authentic as can be, no cover-ups. This letter was a breakthrough, possibly a start to something, but we didn't know what exactly. From here, Sandra would set up a JPay account. JPay is an inmate email service. This way, prisoners can quickly correspond. Once that was done, communication became somewhat regular. John would email here and there, nothing earth-shattering. He would allude to the idea of a phone call many times. And then... Tonight, Michigan State Police investigators are working with police in Missoula, Montana, about possible new developments in the case of the three missing brothers from Marinci. Children's remains were found about 1,800 miles west of... Once this news hit, John got quiet. Sandra would write, but John wouldn't. Sandra even mentioned possibly visiting him inside Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility. Unfortunately, John didn't respond. But then, in January, there he was again. Here's what he wrote to Sandra. You're not on my visitor list. I'll put you on it. Have you filled out the application? I have not wrote you because I'm still processing all the negative stories about me on the news a few weeks ago. I'm not ready for an interview. Those news stories really jeopardized my safety and quite a few people no longer speak to me. I'm glad you liked the recipe I sent. I hope you try it. I have my cinnamon roll recipe I'm going to send you. They're very versatile, not to mention yummy. If you send an email to the warden asking to see me, you may be able to without being on my visitor list, you being a reporter. I will write you again. I hope we can be friends. Any progress in getting me those transcripts I asked you for in the first letter? Thank you, John. He opened that door back up, and he and Sandra started talking more about a possible visit or a phone call. Remember, we haven't heard John's voice in over six years. I wondered what his days have been like in prison. His family in Jacksonville told me he wasn't being treated fairly. I looked into this claim. I sent in a Freedom of Information Act request for any and all incident reports from the prison system involving John Skelton. There are only a couple of incidents on record. Both were violations John was accused of committing. The first one? May 13, 2013. John was charged with Class II misconduct. This is for the destruction or misuse of property. Here's the description of the violation, as told by the reporting officer. He says, quote, While conducting a routine shakedown of cell Maple 229-L, I found a stinger made from a white extension cord. This extension cord was found on the left side of the toilet, on the floor. It was inside a toilet paper roll. This is Prisoner Skelton's area of control, per the Prisoner Guidebook. Restitution is sought for the $2.69 for the state extension cord. John made the case that he and his bunkie, otherwise known as a bunkmate, agreed that it was the bunkies, not John's stinger. Also, a stinger is prison talk for taking two wires from something that can be plugged into an outlet. In this case, we believe an extension cord was stripped of its protective coating, exposing wires. And then those extension cords are plugged into a wall, making the exposed wires live. 
Those wires are then dropped into water many times to heat it up. It's a dangerous and illegal practice. John had a hearing about the incident, and he was found guilty and forced to pay $2.69 in restitution. On August 18, 2016, John is charged with throwing his food tray at a guard. The short version of the story is the officer brought John the food tray. When John received it, he placed a tray he had from a meal before in the slot, so the officer could not close the slot. John then threw one of the trays at the guard, quote, narrowly missing the guard's leg, end quote. The guard says prior to delivering the food, John was screaming and yelling. John and a prisoner witness refuted that allegation. John did admit to throwing the tray, but he said his throw was in the opposite direction, and his reason for doing so was because the officer was very forceful when he grabbed the tray. John would be sentenced to 10 days of detention for the offense. And that's it. Those are the only incidents reported back to me. Nothing pointing at him being mistreated, like John's family said. It's been difficult to get to John, but now that he and Sandra were emailing each other, it seemed like something was about to happen, and that maybe he was beginning to trust Sandra. But he had already promised her phone calls, many times. I'm, I'm going to call it. Let's call it. You want to call it? Yeah, he only has 11 minutes. So let's... He never called. Even in prison, he was manipulating people. And those people happened to be us this time. Eventually, after many emails, John would agree to a visit from Sandra. Now, the Michigan Department of Corrections does not allow any kind of recording device inside the prisons. No pens, no pencils. They're not allowed in either because they could, maybe, be used as a weapon. Sandra would talk to John and have to commit as much of that conversation to memory as she could. Her and I chatted just before she got to the prison in Ionia, Michigan. We're hoping that John Skelton will stick to his word and will actually come out during visiting hours and talk to us. How are you feeling? Are you nervous? You know, I'm feeling kind of a range of, of things right now. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit apprehensive. You know, I'm nervous given John's track record. You know, we've been writing back and forth for several months, but we did have several phone calls set up with him where John has said he would call and hasn't called. So I'm trying not to think about his track record as we drive here this morning, and I'm hoping he follows through. I think like everybody else, I'm just, I'm hoping he just, I want to hear from him. Okay. All right. Well, be careful, and then uh, let me know when you're out of there. All right. We will. All All right, right, guys. After this phone call, I waited, and I waited. I didn't know what was going on. One hour, two. Then she called. They took me back through security, which was through a very heavy steel door. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw John Skelton sitting by himself on the far corner of this room. And at first, I will have to tell you, I barely recognized him. He looks dramatically different. He's probably gained somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 pounds. Holy cow. And he's almost unrecognizable. She's right. He looks like a different human being altogether. The prison allows visitors to take pictures with inmates. You can see a picture of John and Sandra at ShatteredPodcast.com. He is balding, 
He's bulkier everywhere, but full in the face. He looks like a big guy now, but you have to keep in mind that he's five foot seven. His facial hair is gray and white. He's aged significantly, but you can tell by looking at his eyes that it's still John. I was in shock, complete shock. My heart dropped, and what happened next, I, I just, I walked right over to him. I shook his hand, and he started sobbing. He just broke down and started sobbing, and I was completely caught off guard by that. I sat down. The chair that was available was right next to him, so we sat side by side the entire time. And he said, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to cry like this, but I haven't shaken anyone's hand and I haven't had any contact, no contact visitors in many, many years. Sandra offered John food from the vending machines in the visitors area. And he said, do they, can you look and see if they have Doritos? And I said, sure. And he said, I'd also, would really appreciate a, a hamburger. The inmates aren't allowed to get out of their chairs. So Sandra got up, grabbed some Doritos and microwaved John, not one, but two double cheeseburgers. And he kept saying, I haven't seen or touched a Dorito. And I can't remember when. And he would just pick up a Dorito. And then he'd kind of fiddle around with it and put it back down. And this went on for a little, you know, a couple of minutes. All this time and effort put into getting a chance to speak with John Skelton. And now here he was, fixated on a Dorito. I asked him if he felt safe. And he said, not since the news reports had started airing about Montana. Children's remains were found about 1,800 miles west of Marinci. Sandra Lee reported. He shared a lot about his last days with the boys, his last memories with them around the time of Thanksgiving. Do you remember the details? He did. He went into great detail. He talked about the last meal he cooked for them, which he said he made their favorite meal, which was fried chicken. And they sat at the kitchen table and they all ate fried chicken together. And he had made a cake, a homemade cake. And they sat there and ate the homemade cake. And he said the, what was left behind, the leftovers of that cake, he said, were in the house when police and detectives came through on Black Friday. He talked about the, the, how they watched a karate movie that night, and I asked him very specific questions about what was found on his search history on his computer. In case you forgot, here's what police found in those searches. I believe one of them was, does rat poison kill or does rat poison kill children? and something also along the lines of, can you break someone's neck with your hands? After the movie or during the movie, the boys, he said, asked him about some a specific scene in the movie where someone slips and breaks their neck. 
and he said that he searched with them on the computer about this neck-breaking scene, and he said um, they had a great time. It was a beautiful memory, and he said at 10 o'clock at night, that night... Which night was this? He said Thanksgiving night. Okay. But he said at 10 o'clock on Thanksgiving night, these people from the underground sanctuary who had been to his house three or four times before came and picked up the boys. And he said he told Andrew Alexander and Tanner they were just going to go be on a farm with another family, not forever, but just for a short time. I asked him, did you just stand there and watch as this van pulled away with your three boys? And he said, yes. So according to him, and he specifically said underground sanctuary again, right? He specifically said underground sanctuary. And I actually, I asked him several times, John, who is this group? Who is this group? Who is this group? And he finally, one of the last times I asked him, he said, Sandra, I already told you. I I told you their name before. It's underground sanctuary. And I said, where is underground sanctuary? Where are they from? And he said, today, they have ties to Pennsylvania, but I know they took Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew to a farm on the Ohio-Indiana border. And so I asked him, how do you know after all these years that they're safe? You're saying you did this to protect them, so how do you know when you give them away to almost complete strangers, which is his story, how do you know they're safe? And he said, I have to have blind faith. Sandra met with John early February of 2017. A little over a month later, John was confronted in prison by someone. Someone, John claims, knows where his sons are. We'll be right back. We've been digging, looking for information about this underground group, this underground sanctuary. I want to make it clear, we haven't found anything on that group. We haven't been able to find Joanne Taylor, a Virgil, Sue, or Elijah. Those are names John offered up in the past. We did stumble onto someone, though. My name is Mose Gingrich, M-O-S-E-G-I-N. Meet Moe's. <laughs> it's the latest in reality TV, and our next guest has emerged as an unlikely star. Please welcome from Amish in the city, Moe's. Moe's Gingrich grew up Amish. He left the community and, believe it or not, became a TV personality. He appeared on shows like Jimmy Kimmel Live and Live with Regis and Kelly. Obviously, there was a lot of things that I had heard about the world and I wanted to go out and, and experience them. You know, I wanted to see what's outside. Isn't it great? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Moe's left the Amish community in 2002. And like he said, he was looking to get more out of life than the Amish lifestyle could offer. He would find his way in modern society, but that transition wasn't easy. 
me and my wife kind of opened a some people call it an ex-Amish underground railroad where the new kids that are leaving move in with us and we've helped them get established in in, in the outside world um, help them buy their first car uh, let them live with us for either free or almost no money until they can find a good job, okay. get some education, that sort of thing. But what does any of this have to do with John Skelton or the boys? Actually, it took me a while to connect the dots because I was like, how did this guy ever get my name? But I started thinking about it. In 2012, we actually did an entire TV series, 10 episodes, on exactly this topic. By this exact topic, Moses talking about the Amish, leaving the old world, for the new. We think he probably seen this television program and thought what a perfect alibi to continue this wild goose chase. John used the name Underground Sanctuary. Mo said, yeah, okay. My group doesn't even have a name. Okay. Uh, Mo says he never described his operation as the Underground Sanctuary. Underground Railroad, yeah, but not Underground Sanctuary. Around the time John brought Mo's name to light, the prison allowed him to watch TV. Because this program could have been considered educational, there's a chance John saw it, and saw Mose. Mose is from Missouri. He doesn't live in Michigan. So why was he here? Well, police brought Mose in to speak to John Skelton, face to face. John said Mose would know where his kids are. Well, now, here was Mose. I actually went to the jail today and sat down with him and spoke for uh, several hours. Mose had never been to prison before. So that was a new experience, mm -hmm. and uh, it was pretty intimidating, actually. I was probably more nervous than he was when he first walked in. As nervous as Mose was, John was equal parts shocked. He was completely caught off guard. He had no idea I was coming. I think when he gave the detectives this alibi, I don't think he ever once thought that the person he's accusing is going to come sit down and actually talk with him. And it caught him off guard. Did he recognize you? Yeah, he recognized me immediately. As soon as he walked in that room, his eyes went to me, and I could see him trying to process what's going on here. And by the time he was sitting across the table from me, he had kind of pieced it together. And he's head and shoulders smarter than I would have given him credit for. Instead of blurting something out that was like, oh, you did that TV show, it took him three seconds to be like, I saw you in a picture. Somebody gave me a picture. And he was just, I couldn't believe how smooth he was with, the, with, the, with how he started out. This is what we've heard about John. Smart. Dangerously so. Mose went right to the important stuff. Basically, I came in and called him out on his lie. Mose said he wanted to talk about the boys. And then he said, John, you mentioned an agency and mentioned that agency was supposed to get the boys to me. And I said, uh, I want you to know, Mr. Skelton, that I never received those three boys. If you did give them to an adoption agency, there was a disconnect between them and me. Not only did I never receive them, but I've never even heard of them until six months ago. And he, uh, he acted just mind-blowing. Sad, tears started coming. He said, well, that was my last hope. That's the only thing I had left. I was always told that once I get out of jail, I can find you and I can contact you and you'll be able to tell me where these kids are. John was telling Mose that he thought Mose was the guy. 
he thought Moe's would have all the answers. And now finding out Moe's doesn't, things seemed bleak. Moe's wasn't buying it. He started an investigation of his own. I nailed down a time frame to him. When did, uh, when did this organization say that they found me? He said, well, November 2010, like literally when the boys disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tell him this, and he still doesn't know. My show didn't come out until 2012. I was nowhere on the internet. I was nowhere listed on the record anywhere for him or the organization to have found me in 2010. In other words, Mose was off the grid, living in Columbia, Missouri. And what Mose found in John is much of what we've heard time and time again. I did get the impression that he's kind of playing the victim. He, he, the tears kind of kept randomly coming at inopportune times when he was running out of things to say. He really came across as a guy who uh, wants people to like him and accept him. He's a victim. Everybody's picking on him. The world's against him. The guy seemed pretty collected, very intelligent. Uh, you just about couldn't get him to change his story or slip up anywhere. He's very collected. John Skelton has told himself and the world so many lies and so many falsehoods over the last seven years that he's come to believe most of them. I do believe that. Mose had one last trick up his sleeve. He looked right at me when I told him what I'm there for and he said, have you found my sons? Did you actually find him? And at that point, I had to know if this guy's telling the truth. And I had to try to get him to admit it to me in a roundabout way. So I spoke with him for like an hour or so until he started getting on to more of a comfort level. He started leaning into me and talking to me. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when he was completely about as off guard as you can get him, I said, did the agency mention the name Cephas Yoder? And he goes, Cephas, you And then he caught himself and reined himself back in and started taking it back. But on my TV show, Cephas Yoder was a very popular ex-Amish kid, and he lost his life in a car accident. It was a very moving, touching story. Mm. And I specifically brought his name up when he was as off guard as I could get him, and he flinched and he wanted to talk about Cephas Yoder and ask about him, but then he caught himself because he had to pull himself back. Interesting. And I, and I had to know whether he truly believes an agency gave the kids to me or whether this is all a fabricated story because he saw my documentary program on TV. And when he acknowledged that he knows who Cephas Yoder is and he showed an emotional connection to it, that at that point the conversation could have been over. Mm -hmm. I knew. I knew at that point he's, it's all lies. It was all made up. It's all lies. His life's on the line. Once your life is on the line, you're going to do anything, any extreme measures to the ends of the earth to try to save your own life. If it means accusing other people randomly, that's no big deal. Uh, he, he's basically grasping at straws to try to either prevent staying in jail for the rest of his life or, you know, just never getting out. Moe's plans to stay in contact with John in hopes of pulling more information out of him. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. On the next episode of Shattered, John Skelton. It would break my heart if Tanya actually believed it, but if she believed that 
John opens up about the boys, Mose Gingrich, Tanya and her sister Tennille, and much, much more on the next Shattered. If you have any information about the boys or this case in general, please call Detective Jeremy Brewer at 517-636-0689, and that's right into my desk phone. If you're enjoying the podcast, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find us and get the word out. If you'd like to see and hear more about this story, go to ShatteredPodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching Shattered Podcast. And you'll want to do it, because you're going to want to see what John Skelton looks like now. I'll talk to you guys next week.